Our scripture reading this morning begins in the 18th chapter of Genesis, verse 9. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you, about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No but you did laugh. And from Genesis 21, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. From Hebrews 11, by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable, innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks that we have it here in our own language. We thank you for the way it speaks hope and life into, into our souls when we are weary, when we are in need of truth. We pray that your spirit would be at work in this hour to, to meet us where we are, to shape and direct our faith on the Lord Jesus Christ and him crucified. In his name we pray, amen. For some, introductions can be awkward. Perhaps you just experienced that during the greeting of peace. How many of you have ever called someone by the wrong name during the greeting of peace? How many of you have ever done the 360-degree rotation looking around you for someone to say hello to and everyone's already found someone to say hello to and you stand there awkwardly, embarrassed? I've done it. It's strange. It's awkward. For this woman in this passage, though, introductions had become profoundly painful. Painful because her husband would introduce himself as Abraham, meaning the father of many. 
He would introduce her as Sarah, meaning princess. But the names stung. These new names stung like a cruel joke because they weren't true. Sarah didn't feel like a a princess. She felt like a peasant. Because she had not made Abraham the father of many, she had made him the father of none. For decades, Sarah had longed to be a mother. Finally, at age 65, God promised that she would be. She would have a son. But by Genesis 18, our passage this morning, it had been 24 years since that promise was first announced. And still, no sign of a son. 24 long years of crying out, How long, O Lord? One Huffington Post writer recently described her mother's, uh, her adoptive mother's struggle with infertility with these words. She carried pain deep in her heart for the children she could never bear. Her sorrow was real. Her frustration was never ending. The heartache of never giving birth weighed heavily on her, and she never felt 100% complete. Sarah probably felt some of those things. I know there are those of you here who have felt some of those things too, whether through infertility, miscarriage, or the loss of the ability to bear children. It's a painful reality in this fallen world. And yet Sarah would have also felt more pain than just those things. As a woman of the ancient Near East, Sarah would have also felt social rejection because of the assumed connection between infertility and immorality. She would also have felt physically vulnerable because of the way older women so depended on sons to provide for them in their old age. And she had no son. And if those things weren't enough, Sarah had this unique source of pain in her life of of not having a son, not having any child. All of redemptive history hung in the balance. God's promises given to Abraham, her husband, and to her in the covenant of grace could not come true without a son. Without a son, there would be no great nation. No great nation living in the promised land becoming a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. And so Sarah was grieving. Sarah was confused. Sarah was bitter. Perhaps this whole move from Ur to Canaan was a mistake. Perhaps God himself was just her husband's own delusion. And it was into that web of sadness and doubt that God showed up. He literally, in Genesis 18 walked into her tent, spoke to her, worked in her to move her from from the unbelief of Genesis 18 to the commendable faith of Hebrews 11. God did that work in her as he revealed his faithfulness to her so that she would one day consider him faithful. God reveals his faithfulness in in these passages to to her and to us in three ways. 
that we might consider him faithful. God's faithfulness is gracious, it is personal, and God's faithfulness is powerful. First, God's faithfulness is gracious. I mentioned earlier that Sarah is the first person in Hebrews 11 whose appearance we might be a little bit surprised by. There are more to come, but Sarah is the first. From what we read about her in the Old Testament, her faith was weak and inconsistent. So the words of Hebrews 11.11, that she considered him faithful who had promised, those words should surprise us a bit. She didn't consider him faithful in Genesis. Not in the narratives that we have. In the narratives we have, she manipulated and schemed out of a lack of faith in God, giving uh, her husband Abraham to her maid, seeking to, to bear a son through her. She laughed in Genesis 18, in God's face. Some of you might readily identify with Sarah, with the Sarah of Genesis. You either have been or now in a place where your view of God is one of cynicism, doubt, perhaps even anger. Your life in God's promises seems so radically contradictory that faith doesn't just feel useless, but wrong. Perhaps some of you are in that place this morning. Others of us, perhaps, our unbelief is quieter. Our unbelief is less disruptive. Perhaps we don't even feel the tension between our lingering unbelief and our outward religious habits. Perhaps some of you this morning are simply crying out to God, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Wherever we are in the spectrum, for none of us is faith ever perfect. For all of us, there are shadows of doubt, shadows of unbelief in God. For Sarah, her, un her laughter was a sign of unbelief. We know as much because God confronts her about it. God asks her, why did you do this? And the context is, you've done something wrong. Sarah knows it was wrong. Sarah knows it was sinful unbelief because she hides it. She attempts to hide it, as we all do so often, in a futile attempt to deny our sin before the all-seeing God. If God were fair, we and Sarah would be cut off from God because of our sin, our sin of unbelief and, and so many other sins that we see and don't see. If God were fair, he would revoke his promises to us. But thanks be to God, we do not serve a God of fairness. We serve a God of grace and of mercy. In Sarah's story, there is nothing said after the last three words of Genesis 18, 15. Nothing else said about her pregnancy, about God's promise. It's silent for three chapters. The last three words of Genesis 18, 15 are words announcing guilt. You did laugh. And we go to the rest of chapter 18, all of 19, all of 20, without hearing anything else about it, waiting in suspense to see how God would finally respond. And then the words of Genesis 21, 1, burst on the scene. 
dripping with grace, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Despite Sarah's unbelief, God was faithful. In Sarah's story, in the whole Bible, and in our lives, God's faithfulness is not motivated by fairness. It's motivated by grace. As Paul wrote to Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. And it's his gracious faithfulness that began to break down Sarah's doubt and bitterness. It probably didn't transform her into a a person of great faith on that day that she was confronted in Genesis 18, but, but the work of God in her heart began. Somewhere between Genesis 18 and Genesis 21, she moved into that character of faith that we read about in Hebrews 11. We don't know exactly when or exactly how, but God's grace to her was moving her to that place. Some of you might say, that's great for Sarah. Good for her. She got her National Enquirer headline, 90-year-old woman gives birth. But that's not my life. God's work isn't that dramatic. I don't see evidences of his faithfulness in that way. For each of us, there are promises in God's word that are hard to believe. Ways in which we feel this gap between our experience and God's promises. Perhaps you feel the, the, the insecurities of not believing. Perhaps you feel that, that God's promises of provision are just a little too good to be true. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Perhaps you wrestle with God's promise of of goodness. That he works all things together for the good of those who love him. Really? Perhaps you wrestle this week in a more particular way with God's promise of justice. After looking at events in Louisiana and Minnesota, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. We don't see it. Not in its perfection. Or you consider what's happened in our own city Thursday night, and you find it hard to believe God's promise of peace, that our God is a God who makes wars to cease, breaking the bow and shattering the spear. And so what do we do? Can we do anything else other than cry out, how long, O Lord? We can. God calls us to. He calls us to cry out, but he also calls us to faith. Faith can can fill that gap between experience and promise, but it's a certain kind of faith, a certain focus of our faith. The focus is on God himself, personally. It's our second point this morning. God's faithfulness is personal. It's about who he is. His faithfulness is is not conditioned by something external. It's conditioned by his own character. Look at Hebrews 11.11 with me. Notice what it says about Sarah's faith. It does not say she considered the promise faithful. It does not say that. 
Sarah's faith was not fixed on the promise in and of itself. The promise was too good to be true. It was biologically impossible. And so her, her unbelief in Genesis, in the narratives we read, is the result of her looking only at the promise. It's too good to be true. I can't believe it in and of itself. The promise also, uh, our faith also is not focused on fulfillment. Genesis, uh, Hebrews 11, 11 does not say Sarah considered the fulfillment of the promise faithful. She didn't see any fulfillment for 25 years. She waited and waited. And we can't measure God's faithfulness by our ability to see when and how fulfillment of the promise comes. If we try to measure God's faithfulness in that way, we will end up like Sarah, sad and bitter. It was this very issue that Gerhardus Voss and his commentary on Hebrews, it was this very issue that he says motivated the author of Hebrews to write this chapter. That the audience that he was writing to was struggling to believe God's promises because they hadn't seen them fulfilled yet. And so he writes this chapter calling them to look back to the past, to people whose faith was not in unbelievable promises, was not in the fulfillment that they could not yet see. It was in God himself. In the God of promise, in the promiser, in him himself. This is totally contrary to how we make promises and how we expect promises to come to us. We make promises that are conditional, promises that we will fulfill if something else happens, conditioned on something external from us. About three years ago, I promised our kids that we would get a dog. Anyone else ever made that mistake? I promised them that we would get a dog, and of course they asked, well, when? I could have said, we'll get a dog when the time is right. I am your father. I am wise. Trust me. But they were six, four, and two at the time, and that kind of trust is a high bar for young children. And so I came up with what I thought was a better solution. I said, we will get a dog when we get a bigger house. I thought it was a good idea. It was worse. A house is harder to come by than a dog. In his grace, God eventually, after several years, did give us a little bit bigger house and we adopted a dog. But God's promises are not like that. They are not conditioned on something outside of himself. It's not as if God is waiting for something else to happen outside of his control in order to fulfill his promises. God's promises are conditioned on him, his character, his trustworthiness. That's the kind of faith that God was after in Genesis 18. That's the kind of faith that God commends in Hebrews 11, considering him faithful. But the question remains for us. How do we know we can consider him faithful? How do we know that we can place our trust and our hopes and our fears in him personally? 
How did, Sarah, how did Sarah come to that point? Or a better way to say it, how did God bring Sarah to that point? He did it with a question. It's the question you read in Genesis 18, verse 14. Look down with me at it. This is our third and final point this morning. God's faithfulness is powerful. Look at the question he asks in verse 14. God could have lashed out in anger after Sarah laughed, but he asks this tender, fatherly, counseling question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's how he responds to her laughter. Is anything too hard for the Lord? It's a deep question. But kids, even you know the answer. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Sarah knew the answer. That's why she tried to cover up her unbelief. Sarah knew the answer, and because she knew the answer, because she knew that nothing was too hard for the Lord, that question became for her both a rebuke and a promise. It rebuked her unbelief that she thought it was too hard for the Lord, but it also worked as a promise, assuring her, convincing her, even this, after 24 years, even this is not too hard for me. But there's a third, deeper layer to this question I want us to see this morning as we close. It's not only a rebuke and a promise, it's a call. It's a call for Sarah to fix her eyes on the Son of God. Think about for a moment, who asks Sarah the question? We didn't read the whole passage of Genesis 18, but the story is of three men coming into the tent, and we know from the context, and we know from the words that are used, capital L-O-R-D, Lord, this is God himself, the covenant God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The one asking Sarah the question, is anything too hard for the Lord, is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And how did Jesus answer the question? Was it too hard for Jesus to be born as a man? No. Is it too hard for Jesus to be born of a virgin? No. Was it too hard for Jesus Christ to go to the cross? No. Just like that question to Sarah was both a rebuke and a promise, so now also the, the cross of Jesus Christ stands for us as a rebuke and a promise, rebuking us for our sin. Revealing the, the great cost and penalty for our sins. The penalty of death and alienation from God. But the cross also is a promise, right? It's a promise that reveals that that penalty, that curse, that alienation was not suffered by us, though we deserved it. It was suffered by the one who asks there the question in Genesis 18, by Jesus, by God's own Son, it's in the cross of Christ that we see the soaring, gracious, personal, powerful faithfulness of God. One of my favorite modern philosophers is a social activist by day and a rock star by night. He goes by the name Bono. In a book published several years ago of conversations between Bono and a, a journalist, 
Uh, their, their conversation uh, moved towards the topic of religion. Talked about the time Bono met the Pope, and the Pope tried on his sunglasses. <laughs> and then it moves for, further, and Bono has this great, now famous conversation and comment on the difference between grace and karma. He says, you see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And yet along comes this idea called grace to upend all that stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. The journalist says, I'd be interested to hear about that. He replies, that's between me and God, but I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. The journalist replies, the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world. I wish I could believe in that. Whose response does that remind you of? Sarah's. Too good to be true. Doesn't match my experience in this life. How could I believe in that? What breaks down that that mode of unbelief where we, we filter our view of God and of Jesus Christ by our own experience. What breaks down that cycle of unbelief, that filter of unbelief? It's the work of God alone. God breaks that down. He breaks it by revealing his gracious, personal, powerful faithfulness to us in the cross of Jesus Christ. He breaks it down by by calling us to repent and to believe. That's the culmination of Hebrews chapter 11. If you read the chapter, it ends on kind of a downer. Chapter 11 ends by telling us that these people, Abraham, Sarah, Noah, Enoch, Abel, these people did not receive all of the promises that they had been given. They died having seen some, but not all. Still striving and hoping after something greater. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, are the great culmination of Hebrews 11. They say this, essentially, repent and believe. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Repent. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so the question to all of us is, have we done that? Have we repented, confessing that sin which clings so closely? Have we believed, looking to Jesus, crucified, and also raised and seated at God's right hand. If you haven't done that, or aren't sure if you've done that as God calls you to, I'd encourage you to do it today. 
Let today be the day of salvation. Don't harden your hearts any longer. Look to Christ. Trust His faithfulness to you. Whether you're a new Christian or a Christian just trying to make it one more day, consider Him faithful. If Jesus has done the hardest thing for you, He can do those less hard things that you doubt He can do. He can do them. He will do them. He will fulfill every promise He has made. And the day is coming when you and I ascend to that great city, heavenly Jerusalem, and we get to introduce ourselves to Sarah. We'll introduce ourselves and our family, our loved ones, and she'll introduce herself and her family. She'll say, I'm Sarah. My name means princess. And it's true. I'm the daughter of the king. This is my husband, Abraham. He's the father of many. Just look around. You can see. This is my son, Isaac. His name means laughter. There was a time I didn't believe. And then God changed that laughter to joy. And then she'll say, and look to the center of this city. Look to the one seated on the right hand of the throne of God. He came from me too. And he came for me, just like he did for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice that despite our sin, despite our unbelief, you have remained faithful to us. We see it so clearly in the story of Sarah. We see it so clearly in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we ask that you would help us to believe. Do that work which only you can do, turning doubt and sadness to trust and joy. May you do that as we deepen our gaze and our faith in Jesus Christ and him crucified, raised and returning to fulfill all his promises. It's in his name we pray. Amen.